All right, well, we're going to get into the Word today, and I, wanna, I wanted to get into it a little earlier than usual because I want to leave some time at the end for us to go after God a little bit more in worship and, and press in a little bit more in the, into the Holy Spirit today. So we are wrapping up our, our beginning of the year teaching series, which is called Eyes on the Prize. And we've been using Paul who said that one thing I do, forgetting that which was behind me, I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we want to talk about putting our eyes on the prize. What is the prize for us as a church? What has God called us to as Kauai Bible Church? And can we, like Paul, recognize that we're not there yet, but what we're going to do is we're going to press on to lay hold of those things that God has for us. And so we have spent these last several Sundays talking about what are the core things that are going to help us achieve the prize that God has called us to. And so we have talked about that every person matters. And if every person matters to God, then every person should matter to us. And that we should have a passion to, to, to go out and to reach people because God loves them and God wants to do something powerful in their lives. That also means that every person in this church is a gifted and valuable member of the body. And every one of us has something so precious to offer to the church family. We talked about a team of teams that just like a body is made up of multiple different systems, but all of those systems work together so that our bodies function properly. So the church, we are one body, but we have multiple different systems that all work together so that we can be as effective as possible. And so as a church, we want to be a team of teams, and that might be the worship team or a hospitality team or a prayer team or a parking lot team or a follow-up team or teams I'm not even thinking of yet, but that we would have teams that all of us working together would make this church as effective as possible. Last week, we talked about a disciple-making church. That disciple-making is not a ministry in the church. It is the ministry of the church. And that everything we do as a church should run through the filter of, is this helping us make more disciples? We talked about having four generations of discipleship in our lives. And we're not there yet, but that's the challenge and that's the goal. And so we're going to conclude the series today with one last foundational piece. And to talk about this first, I want to talk about uh, just... Uh, some church descriptions to make sure that if we use these words, everybody knows what we're talking about, right? One of those descriptions would be a Pentecostal church. If you've ever heard that terminology before, what is a Pentecostal church? Well, a Pentecostal church is a church that believes that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began on the day of Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago is still continuing today and that we are still in the age of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You might also have heard the phrase a charismatic church. What is a charismatic church? Well, it's based on the Greek word charismata, which is what is translated in the Bible as gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so a charismatic church is a church that believes that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still active today. And so I think it's okay, you know, as as churches, it's okay for us to make fun of ourselves, right? So there's that old joke that says, how many people does it take to change a light bulb in each different church? Well, you see, in a charismatic church, it only takes one person because our hands are always raised anyway. Come on. In a Pentecostal church, it takes 10 people to change a light bulb. One person to change it and nine people to pray against the spirit of darkness. Come on, all right. 
in a Calvinist church, nobody changes light bulbs. If God predestined it to change, it'll change itself. Come on. Come on. Hey, in a Baptist church, it takes 15 people to change a light bulb. One person to change it, and then three committees to discuss the church lighting policy. Okay? And then in a Catholic church, they would just light candles. Right? They would just... uh, It's okay to make fun of ourselves. That book that Mark referenced earlier that that Billy Graham wrote on the Holy Spirit, Mark shared an excerpt of it with me, and I just, I love the, the wisdom of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham shares that the Holy Spirit is one of the most divisive topics in the church today. But he says this, he says, We should not shrink from stating specific differences of opinion, but we should also try to understand each other, pray for each other, and be willing to learn from each other as we seek to know what the Bible teaches. I can have wonderful Christian fellowship, especially in the work of evangelism, with those who hold various views. And so we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is a topic that divides churches. But God doesn't want us to be in division with other followers of Christ. God doesn't want us to be prideful to say that we're better than other followers of Christ because we believe a certain way about the Holy Spirit. But God does call us to have convictions and to live out those convictions. And so rather than using the phrase Pentecostal church or charismatic church, which both of those phrases would describe us at KBC, I want to introduce a new phrase as a core value of who we are. And that phrase is a book of Acts DNA. That as a church, we have a book of Acts DNA. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. So you can see in your notes, our thesis today is this. That things of the Holy Spirit that many consider weird today were the expected norm in the book of Acts. Many of the things today that people are like, well, I don't want to go to that church. That's weird. But in the book of Acts, they didn't think it was weird. They actually expected it. They were actually disappointed if it didn't happen or if they didn't receive it. And so what I want to do today, you'll notice in your notes that I didn't put a passage of Scripture in your notes that we're going to study. And the reason for that is, is because I want us to do very quickly this morning a survey of the entire book of Acts. So we're going to take like a 30,000-foot flyover of the book of Acts. And so rather than just being one passage of Scripture today, there's going to be hundreds of them. And so what I want to encourage you to do is either get ready to write really fast. All right, do some hand aerobics. Get ready and do whatever you can to keep up. Or, because this is the 21st century, get your phone out and get ready to take pictures of the slides when they're full on the screen. Or maybe I'll just email you the slides this week so that you'll have a copy of them, okay? But there we go. I got a thumbs up on that one. I want to talk about what are the elements of a Book of Acts DNA. If the Book of Acts defines the core of who we are, what does that look like? And so we've got five elements I want to share with you today. The first one is a Book of Acts DNA means that we are spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there was 120 followers of Jesus, and they were gathered together in a room praying, and the Bible says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In Acts chapter 6, when the church was going to choose deacons for the very first time, 
They said the requirements of even being eligible to be a deacon is that you had to be full of the Holy Spirit. So if that was a requirement, what that means is, is there were people in the church that weren't full of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they wouldn't have said it because it would have been redundant. So they were looking for the people in the church that were full of the Holy Spirit. Later on in Acts chapter 6, it said that Stephen was full of grace and power. And in verse 10, it says, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was so full of the Holy Spirit that when he spoke, nobody could rebuke him. Nobody could challenge him. Nobody could win a debate with him because he was full of grace and power. In Acts chapter 8, a revival was breaking out in Samaria. And so they sent two apostles to find out if they had received the Holy Spirit. And in verse 16, it says, For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they began to lay hands on them, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, it says that the Holy Spirit baptized Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. This was the first time that anybody saw visible evidence that God didn't just move amongst the Jews. He moved amongst everybody, even amongst the Gentiles. And it says in verse 45, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. In Acts 13, 52, it described the church by saying this, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 19, Paul goes into Ephesus and he finds this group of 12 men who are followers of Jesus. And he says, have you guys received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And these 12 guys are like, we never even heard if there was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul was like, well, then what baptism have you received? And they said, well, we've received John's baptism. And Paul was like, That's, that doesn't cover it. So what does he do? First, he baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And then he lays hands on them so that they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. Listen, in the book of Acts, being filled with the Holy Spirit wasn't considered weird or strange. It was expected. The church leaders never said, wow, that's weird that you're speaking in tongues. You know what the church leaders said? They said, why aren't you speaking in tongues yet? It was expected. And so if someone hadn't received the Holy Spirit, their goal was to get them filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? What's the big deal? that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to get real deep in theology on this, but what we see here from Scripture, first off, is that being filled with the Holy Spirit is separate from salvation. Almost every one of these stories that we read in the book of Acts, the people they're praying for have already given their lives to Jesus. They've already had a moment of salvation. They're already following Christ. Getting filled with the Holy Spirit is a separate event. It's a next step. Why was it a next step? Because being filled with the Holy Spirit would empower us for ministry. 
Jesus told his followers, don't even start the ministry until you get filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can have that power to go out and do what I've called you to do. And what we find in the book of Acts is that when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's accompanied by gifts of the Spirit. And whether that's speaking in tongues or prophesying or many of the other gifts that are listed in the Bible, it's accompanied by having the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to consider being filled with the Spirit to be some weird, strange, spooky thing. No, we should expect it. And if we haven't gotten it yet, we should ask for it. And we should ask people to pray for us. And we should desire it because being Spirit-filled is a part of our DNA. The second one is being Spirit-led. Being Spirit-led. In Acts chapter 8, in verse 26, it says that an angel appears to Philip and tells him to leave Samaria and to go walk through the desert. Now here's the thing. Revival was breaking out in Samaria. People were getting saved all over the place. Evangelists don't generally walk away from revivals. They like to stick around and see what God is doing. But Philip was obedient and he left the revival and went walking through the deserts. Most people would look at that as a ministry strategy and say, Philip, you're getting it all wrong. You don't leave a revival to go walk through the deserts. But Philip was being led by the Spirit. And then in verse 29, Philip sees a chariot in the distance, and it says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And so Philip followed the leading of the Spirit. He catches up to the chariot. There's an Ethiopian eunuch in there. He leads the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, baptizes him in water, and then that, that eunuch takes the gospel to Ethiopia because he was led by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, Ananias is led by the Spirit. In verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And then the Lord proceeds to tell him, You need to go find this guy named Paul from Tarsus. I'm about to call him to salvation, and I'm about to show him the ministry that he's called to, but I need you to go pray for him. And Ananias was led by the Spirit, and because of that, Paul came to know Christ as his Savior. And Paul became one of the greatest apostles and evangelists the world has ever known and wrote most of the New Testament of the Bible. Why? Because Ananias was led by the Spirit. Acts chapter 10. Peter has this crazy dream about unclean animals and whether he can eat them or not. And then in verse 19, it says, While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without any misgivings, for I have sent them from myself. The Holy Spirit was leading Peter to interact with Gentiles and share the gospel with Gentiles. And thank goodness he did, because most of us here aren't Jewish. Hallelujah. Peter was led by the Spirit. Acts chapter 13, the first missionaries that went out, it says the Holy Spirit sent them out. In Acts chapter 16, Paul said he wanted to go into Asia to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit forbid him from going into Asia. Instead, he has a dream of a man from Macedonia crying out for help, and Paul wakes up and says the Holy Spirit is calling us to Macedonia. And they go to Macedonia, being led by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said this, 
He said, I am being led by the Spirit to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to happen, but what I do know is that the Holy Spirit has told me that imprisonment is waiting for me. But he went anyway because he was being led by the Holy Spirit. A book of Acts DNA is a people who were led by the Holy Spirit. They were in tune with what God was saying, and when God told them to do something, they were obedient to do it. This is the way that God's will was accomplished. From the very beginning of the church was people being led by the Spirit in specific circumstances and in just the right moments, having encounters that would lead people to Christ or see the gospel spread or to see people brought into discipleship because we were obedient to do what the Spirit spoke to us. Listen to Romans 8.14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Listen, being led by the Spirit is not some weird, spooky thing. What it is, is it's part of our identity as sons and daughters of Christ. As sons and daughters of God, being led by the Spirit is our identity. And we should live in a daily awareness of what the Spirit is saying to us and what we should be doing this day. The third element is this. They were devoted to praying together. They were devoted to praying together. In Acts 1.14, it says these 120 followers of Jesus gathered in a room, and they were in one accord. That doesn't mean they were driving the same Honda. That means they were in unity together as they were praying. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42 says the same thing. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 4 and verse 24, it says, When they heard this, who was they? The church. What had they heard? That Peter had been thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And so what did they do? They prayed. This was Peter and John who had been thrown into prison and then released, they, and they had been uh, persecuted and beaten. The church prayed. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God again with one accord. They were together. There was a unity of spirit as they prayed together, and God moved powerfully. Acts chapter 12, Peter is in jail again for preaching the gospel. And it says as he's sitting in jail, this time they've got him sitting in between two guards, handcuffed to both guards. They're like, Peter's not getting out this time. And yet Peter has this dream where an angel says, get up, and the handcuffs fall off. And Peter gets up and starts walking out of the jail. And he thinks it's a dream, but it's really happening. He walks right out of the jail. What was happening the same time this angel was leading Peter out of jail? The church was gathered together at Mark's mom's house, praying together. And Peter must have known because he went right to Mark's mom's house and knocks on the door, and they didn't believe he was there. But that's what they were praying for. The church prayed together. Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch was praying together, and they were fasting and praying. And the Holy Spirit separated out Paul and Barnabas and said, I want you to send them out as the first cross-cultural missionaries. And so they prayed and they fasted and they laid hands on them and they sent out the first Christian missionaries that this world has known. 
Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. What do they do? They pray together. At midnight, they were praying and singing songs and worshiping while all the other prisoners listened to them. Part of our book of Acts DNA is that we are devoted to praying together. That There is a, a passion there is a dedication. There is a unity of spirit in our hearts that as the people of God, we should pray together. And if we would pray together, we would see so much more happen than we've ever seen up to this point in our history. I don't know what that looks like just yet, but I do know that as a church, we need to start praying together more. And we'll work with the leadership team and figure out what that looks like. The fourth element of a book of Acts DNA is signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Acts 2.43, the first church was in awe of the signs and wonders being performed through the apostles. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John walking into the temple. There's a lame man who sat in front of the temple begging for money. He'd been there for years. And what did Peter and John say? Hey, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we're going to give you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And he gets up and starts walking, and revival breaks out. Acts 4.33, it says that not only were they preaching the resurrection, but they were backing up their preaching with signs and wonders. Great power of God was at work. In Acts chapter 5, a healing revival breaks out in Jerusalem. It says they were, by the masses, they were bringing the sick and the demon possessed to the church. And it says every single one of them was getting healed. Every single one of them was getting set free from demonic oppression. Acts chapter 6, we talked about Stephen, the deacon, full of grace and power. And it says he was performing signs and wonders. Acts chapter 9, man, Peter was on a roll. First he walks into Lydda. And there's a man named Aeneas there who'd been paralyzed for eight years, couldn't get out of bed. Peter lays hands on him, prays for him. He gets healed. Revival breaks out in Lydda. Then he goes to Joppa. And in Joppa, there's a woman named Tabitha who had just died. But she was the most beloved woman in the whole village. So what does Peter do? He walks in, prays for her. She raises from the dead. And revival breaks out in Joppa. They say it got to the point where they were bringing out the sick just hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them, that they might get healed from the power that was at work. Acts chapter 14, signs and wonders accompanied the missionaries as they preached the gospel. Signs and wonders are a part of our book of Acts DNA. We don't want to just pray for healing. We want to see people get healed. We don't just want to pray for deliverance. We want to see people get set free. Mark chapter 16, Jesus said this to his, his disciples. He said, these signs will accompany those who have believed. Those who have believed. Not just the leaders. Not just these select few. Not just those that have an apostolic office or an apostolic authority. He said, those who believe. Raise your hand if that qualifies as you. Do you believe in Jesus? Then Jesus was talking to you right here. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and the sick will recover. Come on, this is a part of our DNA. 
The last one, bold with the gospel. Bold with the gospel. Acts 2.14, on the day of Pentecost, it says that Peter stood up and preached boldly to all the pilgrims that were in Jerusalem. Listen to Acts 4.31. We talked about that prayer meeting they were having in Acts chapter 4. Look at the end of their prayer meeting in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Acts 8, 5, Philip shows up in Samaria and just starts proclaiming Jesus to everybody that he sees. Acts 13, 46, it says the missionaries preached boldly the word of God. And the word of God spread throughout the whole region. Acts 14, 3, the missionaries preached boldly in Iconium. Acts 28.31, the very end of the book of Acts, it says that Paul preached unhindered from his house arrest. I find it interesting that the Bible used the word unhindered and house arrest in the same sentence. Because generally you would assume that being on house arrest would hinder you. But it didn't hinder Paul. He preached unhindered. He just told everybody, hey, I can't leave my house, so you come to my house and I'll preach to you. And they kept coming to his house. Bold proclamations over and over again. The book of Acts uses the word bold or the word confidently. Both of those words, as you study it, imply that everything they did and said was backed up by the Holy Spirit. Our boldness doesn't come from our personality. Our boldness comes from the fact that we are backed up by the Holy Spirit. And we know that if we are obedient to speak the word boldly, the Holy Spirit will confirm it and God will work. So why don't we speak it boldly? Because we don't have enough confidence in the Holy Spirit. More confidence in the Holy Spirit would lead to more boldness in our preaching. In fact, I, I made this triangle here for you guys to see. It's pretty simple. All three working together. The Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, and signs and wonders. And you can see the arrows are all pointing every di which direction. Because it's not about chronology, about which one do I got to get first so that I get the order right. No, it's that all three are working together. And if we're full of the Holy Spirit, and we're following His leading, and we're preaching the gospel, and we're praying for signs and wonders, they're all going to work together. The old revivalist, Raymond Ritchie, he said this, healing is the dinner bell for salvation. Healing is the dinner bell for salvation. People start getting healed, and people start hearing that bell ringing, and they're going to come for supper. They're going to come to see what God is doing. We read throughout the book of Acts. When that healing revival was breaking out in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5, it says that multitudes were joining the church. Multitudes were coming to Christ. When we hear about the missionaries doing signs and wonders and preaching boldly, it says that whole regions were hearing the gospel and people were coming to Christ. Spirit-filled, spirit-led that we are devoted to praying together, that we see signs and wonders, and that we boldly preach the gospel. That's a book of Acts DNA. And you can see in your notes, this is our declaration. That Kauai Bible Church has always had a book of Acts DNA. 
From day one, 1972, this church was planted with a book of Acts DNA. And it will always be the core of who we are. We were having a belong group this week, and, and Linda was sharing, because we've been talking about discipleship structure and leadership structure, and, and Linda shared, hey, I like that you're talking about all this structure, but let's not lose the Holy Spirit. And I so appreciated her admonishment in that. We're not going to lose the Holy Spirit, no matter what we do or what it looks like. The book of Acts DNA is always going to be the core of who we are. As we were working on this sermon this week, Sarah actually posed a great question, and it caused me to go and and do a bunch of research this week. And the question she asked is, well, if people think that all of this Holy Spirit stuff is weird, and yet in the book of Acts it was expected, when did it become weird? When did the church as a whole lose the book of Acts DNA and start considering all of this stuff to be strange? Well, I didn't know the answer to that, so I I went and looked it up. And so here's just a few tidbits about church history. Once the Bible was written, we know that the next generation of church leaders, we have writings from guys like Irenaeus and Tertullian who wrote about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. So we know that one generation after the apostles, they were still moving in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Then we get to A.D. 400. So this is now over 300 years after the apostles have died. And listen to this quote from St. Augustine. We still do what the apostles did when they laid hands on the Samaritans and called down the Holy Spirit on them by the laying on of hands. It is expected that converts should speak with new tongues. 300 years after the apostles died, you still have St. Augustine saying, it's expected that followers of Christ speak with new tongues. So we know that even 300 years after the book of Acts was written, the book of Acts DNA was still evident in the church. So what happened? Well, a couple of things happened. One, there was a church leader named Montanus. And Montanus moved in the Holy Spirit. And so he gathered a bunch of disciples that moved in the Holy Spirit. The problem was Montanus kind of went off the deep end and got heretical and got weird. And the church felt the need to distance themselves from that. And so unfortunately, rather than just distancing themselves from his heresy, is they also distanced themselves from the Holy Spirit. The second thing that happened... again, right around that time period between 4 and 500 A.D., is that the Christian church became the official state-sponsored religion of the Roman Empire. And you know what happens when government gets its hands on things. So this church that had relied on power and the only way they could survive was through the power of the Holy Spirit because the Roman Empire was trying to kill all of them. And yet even though the Roman Empire was torturing them and murdering them, the church continued to grow and expand because it was so desperate to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, that same church now becomes the official state church of the Roman Empire. And rather than desperately relying on the Holy Spirit, they start relying on man-made structures and cleaning everything up and making it really sterile. And it was at that time 
that the moving of the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders began to decline. And rather than get hungry and try to get it back, they started making up reasons why it declined. Well, you know, when the Bible was canonized, we didn't need it anymore. Or signs and wonders died with the apostles. Or the signs and wonders were just to birth the church, and now that the church is mature, they don't need it anymore. None of those explanations could stand up to biblical scrutiny, but that's what happened. Then, for about a thousand years, from 500 A.D. to about 1500 A.D., is what was known as the Dark Ages. And that's where the Catholic Church and then also the King's Church oppressed anything that had to do with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Anyone that moved in the Holy Spirit was executed as a heretic. And they did everything they could to squash it. But it was the Reformation under Martin Luther in the 1500s A.D. that opened the doors back up for the Holy Spirit to begin to move again. And then we know in the United States in the early 1900s under men like Richard Seymour and the Azusa Street Revival that the Holy Spirit began to move in a way again that hadn't been seen in a long time. And what was the Pentecostal movement began. It continued in the 1950s with the Latter Rain movement and the healing revivals under men like William Brannan and, and, and some of those. And we've got to where we are today. So that helps us understand why maybe now there's a lot of churches that might think it's weird, might be uncomfortable with it. But at Kauai Bible Church, we're not going to get prideful about it. We don't have to be weird about it. But we can say we're a Book of Acts church. And what happened in the Book of Acts, we believe it's still happening today. So let's finish today by asking this question. You can see it there in your notes. So how do we as a church pursue the Holy Spirit without becoming weird? Now let's be honest. Some people are going to think we're weird no matter what. Right? Especially if they haven't been raised around charismatic churches. They've never seen it before. They've never heard of it before. Maybe they've been raised in a church where they've been taught that it's wrong or that it's demonic. They're going to think we're weird no matter what. But how can we as a church pursue the Holy Spirit and not have to be weird? I got four things that I want to challenge us to as a church. Number one, develop a hunger. Develop a hunger. If we want to see the Holy Spirit move, we've got to be hungry for it. And I think maybe we've lost our hunger. And if we look at it in medical terms, when somebody loses their appetite and doesn't want to eat anymore, that's a sign that something is seriously wrong. And so in spiritual terms, if we've lost our hunger for the Holy Spirit, something is wrong and we need to get back on track. So you say, okay, well, pastor, how, how do we develop a hunger? Well, we don't have to get real complicated here. What's the best way to get hungry? Stop eating. That's the best way to get hungry is to stop eating. That's why fasting is such a powerful tool to develop hunger for the Holy Spirit. Because when you stop eating, not only do you get physically hungry, but you get spiritually desperate. We stop eating. Fasting is one critical way that we are going to reignite that hunger for the Holy Spirit. But not just fasting from food. See, what happens, I believe, is this, is that we get so distracted or we get so full, our bellies get full, 
on all the things of this world. Entertainment, the internet, social media, news, politics, money, work, whatever it is. We get so full on the things of this world, there's no room left to get hungry for God. So how do we develop a hunger for God? Let's start fasting from some stuff so that we make room for that hunger to develop for the Holy Spirit. So that might mean a TV fast. It might mean a social media fast. It might mean a newspaper fast. It might mean a smartphone fast. It might mean a gossip fast. Oh, look out. Now pastor is meddling. Huh? It might be a complaining fast. Whatever things are filling us up so that we're no longer hungry for God, we need to start fasting from some of those things so that we can redevelop a hunger, and it's out of that hunger that we'll begin to go after God like never before, and we'll begin to see this book of Acts DNA manifest in our church. Number two, stick to the Bible. A lot of the stuff that gets quote-unquote weird is people going outside the Bible and just doing weird things because they get caught up in emotion or they get caught up in the moment. You know what? There is plenty of supernatural stuff in the Bible that happens on a regular basis. We don't need to make up more just so we look even weirder to people. Let's stick to the Bible. Right? I don't read anywhere in the Bible where people are flopping on the floor like fish at the altar. I don't see it. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where someone gets filled with the Holy Spirit and starts barking like a dog. I don't see it in the Bible. So let's stick to the Bible. Number three, we need to practice discernment. We need to practice discernment. And I put in your notes a key question we can ask when it comes to, is this an authentic move of the Holy Spirit? Or is this just people getting weird? And that question is, is this glorifying Jesus and pointing people to him? Because everything I read in the book of Acts was glorifying Jesus and drawing people to Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves as the Holy Spirit begins to move, is this people encountering the power of God and are people getting drawn to Jesus because they're encountering the power of God? Or is somebody just making a spectacle of themselves and everybody is staring at somebody doing something weird? If somebody's just making a spectacle of themselves, then we need to use discernments. And we can take that person and walk him to the side and say, I appreciate your heart for God, but right now, right now we think this is a distraction. Does that make sense? We need to use discernment. Just because somebody says they're full of the Holy Spirit, if they're doing something weird and distracting, doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. We need to use discernment. Let me have the worship team come back up today. And the last one is this. Number four, keep ringing the bell. Keep ringing the bell. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, we just talked about that Pastor Ritchie, back in the 1950s in the revival movement, he said, healing is the dinner bell to salvation. Well, we just need to keep ringing the bell. Kenneth Hagin, when he was a young pastor, had a tiny little church. 
he went to a revival meeting that Richie was leading. And at that revival meeting, Kenneth Hagin was so stirred to believe that God wanted to do something great that he went back to his church and he said, every Saturday night, anyone who wants to come, we're just going to gather in the church and start praying. And he started teaching from the Bible on the power of the Holy Spirit and they started praying. And you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. For six months, nothing happened. But they kept gathering. And then after six months, something broke. And the Holy Spirit began to break through. And healings and supernatural things began to happen. And this small church grew into a church of thousands upon thousands because people were encountering the power of God. And you can see on the screen this quote from Kenneth Hagin. He said, I kept ringing the dinner bell, and God was faithful to manifest his supernatural delivering power. So what do we have to do? We've got to keep ringing the bell. Well, pastor, we're developing a hunger, and we're praying, but nobody's gotten saved yet. Keep ringing the bell. Well, pastor, we're doing this, but no one's gotten water baptized yet. Keep ringing the bell. Well, pastor, we're doing this, but nobody's gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit and started speaking in tongues yet. Keep ringing the bell. Pastor, we're doing this, but nobody's been healed yet. Keep ringing the bell. Pastor, nobody's been raised from the dead yet. Keep ringing the bell. If we'll keep going after it, there'll be that moment of breakthrough. And God will do something supernatural. God wants to do it. The Bible says God's not going to withhold any good thing from us. So all we have to do is keep asking for it. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. Let's keep ringing the bell. Will you stand with me today? I'm calling an audible here, Antonio, so you can disregard the last scripture passage there in the notes. God's leading me to this one instead. Acts 10.38. And this is Peter preaching. He says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's the synopsis of Jesus' entire ministry in one sentence. And if we are called followers of Christ, and we are supposed to represent Jesus to this world, then my hope would be that every single one of our lives could be described with the same sentence. That God anointed us with the Holy Spirit and with power, and we went about doing good, praying for the sick and the oppressed, and seeing them set free because God was with us. Right? Hey, what do you know about that guy Chuck? Well, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and praying for the sick. Hey, what do you know about that guy, RJ? And he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and seeing people set free. Hey, what do you know about that gal, Lannis? Oh, man, she was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, and she went about doing good and seeing people set free. That should be the desire of each one of our hearts. That is the call to us as a 
a book of Acts DNA church. I want to do this. We're going to sing the song Surrender. And I want to invite you, as we begin to sing this song, to surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've held back before because you were afraid of being weird or something spooky was going to happen. Nothing spooky is going to happen. God's just going to move in power on your life. So I want to invite you to take a posture of surrender. That might be kneeling down at your chair. That might mean moving away from your seat and getting somewhere around the altar, somewhere around the stage where you can kneel down, lay down, raise your hands. But I want to challenge everyone. Take whatever posture of surrender that you need to take and let's surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit and let's begin to redevelop that hunger. As you surrender, let's surrender everything that's stolen that hunger away. Let's surrender everything that has dulled our sensitivity. Let's surrender every sin that has separated us from God. Let's surrender everything that the Holy Spirit would be free to move in and through our lives. Holy Spirit, we surrender to you today. God, we want to be a Book of Acts church. We don't want to tell stories of how amazing things used to be. We want to be living in the moment of how amazing things are right now. So God, help us to redevelop that hunger. And God, encourage us to start ringing the bell and then to keep ringing the bell. We thank you for that, Lord.